0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org/quality.
1: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. From time to time we have conversations with area college and university presidents about higher education, how students are being prepared for their careers, the institution's place in the community, and of course cost. Every time we hear about something unique, that's certainly the case today with our sinus college president, Brock Blomberg. President Blomberg, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. And if you have
1: a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. It doesn't have to be about our sinus, but it can. Uh, But uh, about higher education in general, give us a call, ask a question. Your background is uh, so diverse that that we have a lot to talk about. So I'm going to dive right into it. Uh, One of the things that... uh, I don't know whether I'd use the word unique, but it seems to be going against a trend. We're hearing so much here recently about people questioning whether a liberal arts education has value today in today's world. But Ursinus and you, you've embraced the liberal arts education. Why?
0: It's it's because this is a great question, and, and I ask the same question of, of business leaders when I meet them. I was having a conversation with a, an executive at Google, and I said, look, for, for educational purposes, what should we be training our students in? Should we teach them green technology or big data or, or computer programming? And he said, "Brock, you have it all wrong. The one thing we know about the world we're living in is that in, in a, 10 years, it's going to change and move in a different direction. So what we really want our students to be trained in is how to communicate effectively and think critically and work collaboratively and make good decisions, you know, and those are really the capacities that are all about a liberal arts education because it's really training students how to think and how to be thoughtful citizens for the world. And so I thought that was about the best advertisement from a high-tech firm about why you need to have such a strong, horizontal base, such a strong horizontal game so that you can take the vertical game in whatever direction you want to go.
1: So what he described there really is no change over the decades. I mean, communication skills, all those things. But how do you push back against those people who say that a liberal arts is or education is old-fashioned, that it's not keeping up with today's technology, today's world?
0: Well, I, I would say if if you look at the outcomes from our students, we demonstrate that actually our students do better in many ways than people that go in, in very uh, str- uh, more trade-like um, professions. Ninety-seven percent of our students actually, when they graduate, mo- go on to um, high-paying jobs and, and graduate school and medical school, and they actually are very successful, I think, because when they go to those places, what, what employers really want is someone who can think outside the box, and that's really the kind of training and thought experiment that you do at a liberal arts college. You know, uh, learning the whether you you program in Python today or whether it was, you know, um, basic years ago, that's going to change in another uh, 20 years. That's something people have a harder time learning than really how to think critically, and that's what we really want our students to know.
1: What's the most popular major at Earth Science?
0: Well, and this is this is what's great about our Sinus is that while that horizontal game has a strong base, students still want to specialize in certain areas. So most of our students actually double and triple major. Um, but the area that a lot of students want to do is in the sciences. About 45% of our majors are in the sciences. And then the second most popular major is actually business and economics. So while they're still trying to get that that uh, expertise, they have that real firm base in in, um, liberal arts, and and we do that actually through this really unique program in in the first year. It's called the Common Intellectual Experience. And I'll tell you, Scott, it's anything other than common, because what students get a chance to do is for a full year immerse themselves in all the great authors, and they get that real intimate um, experience, that personalized education from a faculty member who will teach the great books, even though they may not be an English professor or a history professor, even our biology professors, our chemists, our physicists, our economists, they're teaching in that program. And so I think that really does help students see that whole mix of uh, how to have a good base but also specialize in the areas when they're trying to get jobs.
1: You mentioned uh, the, the most popular major, 45% in in the sciences. Uh, where are your students getting jobs? And by where, I mean are they staying in Pennsylvania for the most part or are they branching out across the country?
0: I, I think what's happening to our uh, students in the job market is what's happening to uh, uh, students all over. Many of them are staying nearby, but, you know, when, when you're uh, really um, – competitive, you're going to get jobs in other places. So we see students go to Harvard Med School or they'll start in their, their tech firms in Silicon Valley. But the majority of them do tend to stay in this region because uh, there is so much going on. And, and we're actually trying to seed some of that with some of our programs. We have a new program in Philadelphia, actually, called the Philadelphia Experience that the Philadelphia Inquirer actually uh, had a, um, an article on yesterday. And this is a real-world opportunity for students to spend um, a semester working full-time. But at the same time, we're also bringing our faculty to them in Philadelphia so they get that same personalized, immersive education from our faculty. So, um,
1: but doing what in Philly?
0: A, a variety of things. Again, some of them are working in financial firms. Some of them are working in university settings. Some of them are working at museums. And it's a... a Evidence suggests that um, urban environments are going to be where a lot of the new jobs are coming from, so this gives students a chance to experiment with that and get that real-world experience while they're in college and find out if this is where they want to go, and if it's not an experience they, they enjoy, that's great. They at least played around with it and now can, can go the direction that they want to go.
1: Now, that's in, I don't know if partnership is the right word or not, but you're working with Drexel University in Philadelphia on that, right? What's the what's the relationship with there?
0: So, this is the first year we're doing it. And so, th- we're trying to figure out the right way to make sure our students have that, you know, safe, comfortable um, residential setting that we have at our sinus. So the partnership with Drexel at this point is primarily residential partnership. So they're living in Drexel Housing. They're being um, supported by uh, Drexel facilities and, and, and some of the other aspects, mental health, if they need that, need it, or, or uh, lunchroom, that sort of thing. So, so the partnership is mainly that way. But we're also allowing students who may want to take some classes that we don't traditionally offer at our sinus, to take some classes at Drexel as well. So this way, we're really giving students some opportunities that they might not get on campus. And so that's really how the partnership is working.
1: What is unique about that? I mean, I, I, I've seen it described as uh, precedent-setting and, I don't know, first of its kind, but that this is something that is unusual. What is unique about that?
0: Well, there's a couple things that are unique. I think that traditionally liberal arts colleges don't always embrace this idea that Students are immersed in an internship and, and are working during a semester. So are they that, getting paid, by the way? Uh, yes, some okay. of them are getting paid. Right. Um, and so that's one aspect that's, that's unique. I think the other aspect that's unique is that we're very proud of the fact that we are trying to partner with other institutions and allow our students to take you know, more classes. Why, really, a liberal arts college in a small place like um, private colleges is, is about choice. And we're trying to give students a lot more of those choices, so that's really what's different about this kind of model. Um, everything I've seen from it suggests that there's a lot of there there. Uh, we had a, a, an opening, and the students are really excited about this experience. One of the great things is the faculty are actually energized. Our own faculty coming and using Philadelphia as a classroom has actually given them a lot of other ideas that they want to bring back to our sinus to their other classes. So it's really a great import-export bank that uh, we can use, and that's, I think, what makes it um, different and entrepreneurial.
1: Our guest today during this portion of the program is our Ursinus College President Brock Blomberg. If you have a question or a comment about higher education, or sinus give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, what you described, and I think you used the word competition, uh, let's face it, uh, all your institutions are in competition with one another and you're looking for ways to compete with one another. But let's talk about something that uh, a lot of students a lot of their families look at uh, when they decide where they're what institution they're going to attend and that is tuition by the way what's Tuition and room and board at your science this year.
0: It's a little over sixty thousand dollars a year.
1: Okay, so about sixty one thousand uh, dollars What does a student get for that sixty one thousand dollars that they may not
0: get other places? Well, well one of the things that's important I think is to educate everyone about the sticker price that you see believe it or not in order for us to provide this immersive personalized education it cost us more than that sixty one thousand dollars we actually subsidize it at that rate Um, but we believe that price is a measure of quality and so what students are getting there is that personalized attention they're they're getting to know their faculty on a first-hand basis many of them are actually going to have dinners with their faculty they're going to bring their faculty to their to their weddings and, and other things, because it's going to become a long-term relationship. They don't
1: have to do that, do they? <laughs> it's not a requirement. Okay, good. I just wanted to see if that was one of the requirements for graduation. But
0: you'd, you'd be surprised how the, how many students actually go in that direction. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's something that it really is priceless at some level, is, is that students develop that real, intimate, long-term relationship with uh, their, their faculty, their RAs, their student life, um, um, staff, and with their their uh, other alumni, are uh, th- other students that they meet. And, and that's what really kind of sets it apart. I, I think one more thing, if you'll allow me, is the sticker price is also a little misleading, too. Because while we believe the value of an sinus education is actually higher than that, um, we also understand that for a lot of families that that's kind of a big number to look at. And so we want to help seed that investment. So we actually have a lot of scholarship opportunities we try to give families who might be a little um, gun shy of a number like that. We've actually started a real exciting um, scholarship program this year called the Gateway Scholarship. And we realize that that number may sound kind of big, so we're going to give you a big scholarship. It's a $30,000 a year scholarship for four years, $120,000 that we're going to give students who are highly qualified who have SAT scores of 1260 or higher and ACT scores of 28 or higher and have taken college prep courses. So while the, the sticker price is high because we're providing such a high-valued personalized immersive experience, um, and, and as I like to say, we our motto is that we are training students for the jobs of tomorrow that don't exist today, uh, we still want to be able to have this to be affordable for a lot of people that may think those numbers are pretty high.
1: I think that most people would agree those numbers are pretty (laughs) high. When they look at that, that that sticker shock is one of the things that uh, many students and their families, especially their families, uh, uh, do get a little bit of that. But one thing I wanted to question you want, uh, you said that uh, the $61,000 plus, that you believe that um, there is uh, a higher tuition and room and board, tuition is about 49 of that, right? Um, It's in the ballpark. Yeah. Um, is, is tied to quality of education. In what way? Give us some, some examples.
0: So if you go on our Sciences campus now and you want to compare it back to when we went to college, you know, I'm, uh, and when you went to college, uh, Scott, the expectations of what you're going to get are so different. So if you want to actually have this internship I just talked about in Philadelphia, we're providing that. If you want to work in the summer, we had a couple students actually work on the um, La- Mars Land Rover project in Los Alamos. We had another student uh, who actually had her play, um, her original play produced in Philadelphia. If you want to get that kind of support, you're going to get that kind of support. Um, if you want to live in these charming Victorian homes uh, along the main street, you get that kind of experience. If if you want to work in the summers hand-in-hand hand with a faculty member and get your papers published in journals, which have happened, you get that kind of experience. And so those are, th- if you want to study abroad, you get that kind of experience. If you want to work, uh, excuse me, if you want to be on one of our sport teams, we have the largest uh, athletics program in the entire Centennial Conference. So all of those different immersive real-world experiences and relationships come together in a way that's unique. You're not going to get that at a big school. It's not a McDonaldization of education. It's unique, it's distinctive, it's meant to be very personal. And that's what's different about our sinus.
1: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is our sinus college president, Brock Blomberg. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Tuitions, the cost of uh, a college education has become an issue during the presidential campaign. Kind of started with uh, Bernie Sanders when he was still a candidate. Uh, one of uh, his main promises or biggest part of his uh, platform was a free tuition-free college education. Um, that became part of the Democratic platform, which Hillary Clinton, obviously the Democratic candidate, and has been talking about this as well. Uh, first of all, I'll just get your overall thoughts on what they're talking about. Is it possible? How would it work for tuition-free college?
0: So, a lot of the conversation on tuition-free college is centered around public institutions that right. were, they would subsidize community colleges or other state and university settings, so students could go there for free to sort of encourage more students to go. Um, I I think it. I understand the logic behind it. I'm sort of disappointed with the public debate about it because a lot of the conversations are really think about education as a commodity in a negative sense. It's like you just want to go to college to get a degree and so you want to get that stamped. Let's, What's the cheapest way we can do that? And that really doesn't explain the real experience you get at a college and university, how it changes your life, how you move from being, you know, a glorified high school, you know, a girl or boy into being um, a citizen of the world, and it's not just about being in a large classroom setting where basically it's impersonal and you you check enough boxes so that when you graduate, um, I think that's okay for certain people. I don't want to to say that I'm not trying to put down public education at all, but I think that's a very narrow one-size-fits-all way to think about education. And for, I think, a lot of other people, they want to have different experiences. And I think if, you, if the debate is centered around cost and not the value that you get in other settings, that that, in some ways, gets away from what, what really matters. And at a place like our sinus, we think the values that you get go well beyond your, your um, diploma. Like I was talking about earlier, it's these student-centered, real experiences that are life-changing and transformative. And I'm not suggesting that that doesn't happen at public uh, universities, because I I think it does, but the mission's a little bit different, and I don't think that we want to have a a world where I call the McDonaldization. We don't want to basically have uh, the government telling colleges and universities what's the right model... One size fits all for society. If, if you ask, uh, if you went around the globe and you said, what's one of the strongest points in America? I think college and universities would probably be way high up there with maybe our, our tech sector. So I think trying to encourage more of that would be the right way to go. So if I were running for president, we already have some great programs. You know, the, the government has these great loan programs and, and has some other aid programs, expand those because those tend to work. Trying to make it all about free education and the debate associated with it I think doesn't really appreciate the value of of the, the myriad of ways you can be educated in the United States.
1: But the idea behind it is that it would allow more students to go to college who who don't now because either they can't afford it or they don't want to take on uh, that tremendous debt that they would have afterwards. So, I mean, that's a good thing when you look at it that way that you want more students to get a higher education and get a degree.
0: Absolutely. And some of this is a reaction to some institutions where students graduate with high debt levels. They don't do it at our sinus, for example. I think our average debt level is about 25000 after four years. Um, but yes, I, I, I completely appreciate the idea to incentivize it. But what's 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 a fact is that when you look at the outcomes of, of people who do go, and this isn't true for every student, but for many students who start off in um Community colleges, the completion rates are not quite as positive as you might want them to be. And so one fear in, in in these types of programs is if you're incentivizing a lot of people to go to college, and maybe they're not yet ready, maybe they need a little more emotional growth, um, you might be setting them up to to fail in some sense. And, and that's a concern.
1: I want to switch gears for just a moment. Michael Marcon, uh, the former chair of Ursinus' board of trustees, he recently resigned over uh, some controversial statements uh, he made on uh, social media. And these are just some quotes that the Philadelphia Inquirer had, um, and these are his, his tweets. Gotta love a janitor with a ban fracking now sticker on his bucket. Barack is clearly reaching his target demographic, said one of the tweets. Yoga pants question mark. Per my DTW visual survey, only 10% of users should be wearing them. The rest need to be in sweats or actually get dressed. And another said, referred to Caitlyn Jenner. Bruce Jenner got 25,000 for speaking engagements. Caitlyn gets 100,000. What wage gap? Brought up the free speech issue. Um, certainly, uh, I can see where a lot of people would be offended by that, by by those tweets. But there are others who are saying, well, what about uh, Mr. Marcon's free speech, that he can do whatever he wants? How did this all come down? Uh,
0: this is a great question. This is a debate that's not just happening at our sinus. It's happening at every college and university. Uh, it's happening around the water cooler. You know, what's the right way to be able to talk about things? One one thing that's fascinating about this is the power of social media. I mean, the impact of this, these were tweets that, that uh, Mr. Marcon made years ago, and when they surfaced, the impact and the speed is, is tremendous. And so I encourage all of our listeners right now, including uh, students that are science, be very thoughtful on how you put things out in social media. Because it's there forever. It's there forever. There, it's hard to get nuance in 140 characters or less. Mm. And, I, and I know Michael, and, and he's actually, this is not a measure of the man. I'm very disappointed in the tweets that you mentioned. They don't represent some of the values. But it's really hard to have a debate when it's put out there. And so there's a difference between, I think, freedom of speech and conversations that you might have um, when you're not a public figure versus when you, when you are in that s- situation. Um, but, but one thing I really appreciated about this entire um, episode is how our sinus values were infused in this, because we, we have a mission statement where we're trying to encourage students to be independent thinkers, thoughtful and responsible. And when Michael found out that these tweets were out there, he actually took upon himself to come to campus and meet with the faculty and meet with the students and hear them out. And so we really did have a little conversation, a mini-conversation campaign on free speech there. And as he listened to them, he realized that this was probably uh, uh, the responsible decision for him to do was for him to resign in that situation.
1: I imagine the conversation you had with them behind closed doors was not— I don't know if civil was the right word, but probably was emotional.
0: There were certain aspects of it that you know we 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 had one on one, but you know he recognizes this is a mistake and and he's contrite about that and and I uh, and and I understand that as well and he understands that as well.
1: You know, there are probably people out there uh, who would say, "Well, would it?" You know, not be part of uh, sinuss uh, values and, uh, you know, if it had another political point of view. What do you say to people like that?
0: Well, I, I, I disagree with that statement because really one of the things we is still in our common intellectual experience I was talking about earlier is this opportunity to debate and talk out ideas. And so that is certainly not the values that we have uh, uh, one-on-one on campus. Um, but, but I will tell you, you know, the, these are important questions that colleges and universities are, are grasping um, right now. And it's why you, you hear things like um, safe spaces and trigger st- um, warnings and things like that, because people are trying to understand what's the, what's the right way to engage in a civil discourse.
1: And that's something we try to do in this program all the time, so I appreciate, uh, you know, talking about it today. Uh, You know, this is something that's not really related to Ursinus, but uh, you're an expert in the economics of terrorism. Now, I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit. This is an aspect of terrorism. You know, we hear so much about it every day in the news, but it's an aspect of terrorism that we don't hear a whole lot about. Talk about that a little bit.
0: Sure. So my research has really tried to put a price tag on what is the cost of a terrorist event or conversely um, how poor economic outcomes might seed the root cause of terrorism. And look at, you know, uh, from a big data standpoint, what can we actually say and forecast from that? Most of the debate on terrorism is, is, is more emotional. It's more tied up in um, the psychological um, and what my research has tried to do is, is pin this down in terms of dollars and cents. So when you look at an event like 9-11, which was hugely transformative in the United States, it's, it's like the Kennedy assassination. If you ask somebody what they were doing when the 9-11 event occurred, they know exactly where they were because that was such an emotionally charged event. Um, but if you ask somebody how much did it really cost the United States, they don't know the answer. Do you do you have a guess? What 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 would you think it would cost? Uh, you know, I was just sitting here trying to do that. Hundred billion dollars. That's not a bad guess, actually. It's actually about half that. That's okay. the, that's right. the number. And and, and I got
1: to tell you, that was just I just threw that out because <laughs> I have no
0: idea. Well, and that's the point. People don't. And I think um, sometimes fifty billion may sound like a big number, and it is a big number. But in a you know. $15, $16 trillion economy, it's reasonably small. And I think that that's the part that my research tries to tease out, is is the the real economic cost versus the psychological cost. And if you look at what's happened to airport security, you know, it's it's not necessarily that it's really stopping that many more terrorist um, events, but what it is doing is making people feel safer. And so that's the sort of the disconnect. And, or maybe it's not a disconnect. It, it just talks about the value of the feeling more emotionally and psychologically secure versus what it really is costing the um, taxpayer.
1: Just, okay, now, do you uh, look at the economic impact overseas as well? Yes. The reason I ask that is because, uh, you know, I think about the attacks in Paris and Brussels. Um, you know and it obviously had an impact on tourism people visiting those cities but what else i mean what kind of economic impact just to kind of give us an idea of a recent
0: attack um the numbers are, are actually even smaller because nine eleven was a larger event relatively speaking um on average those numbers particularly in developed countries are, are pretty small and that's because our economies are very resilient we have a lot of policy measures that we can put in So when you have a a negative outcome, the government can certainly, you know, put some government spending in. If it's beginning to drag the economy down, central banks can lower interest rates. I mean, there are a lot of levers that policymakers can have. And so it doesn't have that big macroeconomic impact. It can have a strong microeconomic impact. So on tourism, you're right, it's a little larger. Insurance companies can be hit, and that can have an effect. So I don't want to dismiss these as impactful and, and I also want to make sure I, I'm, I'm telling your listeners that losing any life is, is in, incredibly costly and for an economist to try to put a dollar value on that is, is, is really difficult and, and I can appreciate why that people would have would struggle with that analysis. But when you look at those sorts of things, developed countries actually have a pretty reasonably resilient response to them. The places where terrorism has its biggest impact is in less developed countries. And that's where actually you look at one of the biggest root causes of terrorism is failed states. And if you're trying to look at places where you'd see terrorism really grow, it's, it's almost always coming from uh, places where you don't have good governance. So governance is a real important factor in, in terrorism.
1: Mm. So the Iraq's... The Somalias, the Yemen's, those places, bigger impact than even here in the United States.
0: Yes. And certainly that's also uh, uh, the incubator for a lot of the places because, you know, um, terrorism is really in it's, in its, its root. It's about political violence. It's a way to raise awareness about some political issues. In a democracy, you don't necessarily have to go violent. You can, but a lot of that stuff can be done in the public. Um, but in these other countries, this is the way that they uh, get their message out.
1: So much to talk about. Uh, I want to thank uh, Ursinus college president, Brock Blomberg, for being with us. President Blomberg, a lot to talk about. We'll have you back on the program sometime.
0: Love to be back. Thank you so much, Scott.
1: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. According to the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, as many as one million Americans live with Parkinson's with 60,000 new diagnoses each year. The progressively degenerative disease causes sufferers to lose control of motor skills and eventually lead to dementia. Ancillary symptoms from the disease can include loss of sleep, anxiety, and depression. Eventually the disease will lead to permanent disability. Of course, one of the people that uh, is one of the best known people in America who uh, suffers from Parkinson's disease is Michael J. Fox, the actor. I want to hear from, um, this was from 1999 when he uh, testified before a Senate committee.
0: For many people with Parkinson's, managing their disease is a full-time job. It is a constant balancing act. Too little medicine causes tremors and stiffness. Too much medicine produces uncontrollable movement and slurring. And far too often, Parkinson's patients wait and wait. As I am right now, for the medicines to kick in. <coughs> New investigational therapies have helped some people like me control symptoms, but in the end, we all face the same reality the medicine stops working to talk a lot about what uh,
1: Michael J. Fox had just, say, just said uh, just a moment ago. Our guest today is Dr. Taya Garajan Submaranian of the Milton, Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Submaranian, welcome to, uh, to the program. Thank you very much for joining us
2: today. Thank you, Scott.
1: Also joining us is uh, one of the doctor's uh, patients, Angie Alaja Henriquez. Uh, Ms. Enriquez, welcome to the program. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment about Parkinson's disease or brain health overall Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I kind of described in my introduction what Parkinson's disease, some of the symptoms, but uh, what causes Parkinson's disease?
2: So we completely don't understand the actual mechanism by which Parkinson's occurs. However, we have uh, made some advances in the field And we think it's a combination of genetic risk factors and environmental risk factors. You need to have both in order to get the disease. Some examples of genetic risk factors are um, a form of Parkinson's in which A gene is abnormal. Um, Alpha-synuclein is one example. Uh, Several other examples of such genes that are inherited. But there are also environmental risk factors like uh, living in rural areas and drinking well water, exposure to pesticides. They are considered risk factors. Now, these are not definitive. Uh, You need to have both the genetic and environmental risk factors come together. How they come together and actually produce disease is still not fully understood, and that's an area of active research that's ongoing.
1: Is there any way, when you just mentioned those risk factors, I mean, there are millions and millions of people drinking well water and living in rural areas, obviously. Um, I mean, do those risk factors have to go with the genetics?
2: That's a great question. So this is often the question my patients ask because most of uh, rural Pennsylvania drink well water and not, don't have access to city water. but. What a risk factor really means is that it's just a risk factor. It doesn't mean a definitive association. Just because you drank well water, would you get Parkinson's disease? No. Uh, Just because you have a genetic risk factor, will you get the disease? No. You need to have both. And how the two of them come together and produce disease is still not entirely clear. And this is an area, as I said, of um, considerable research, a lot of funding going into understanding these risk factors and how they come together to produce disease And whether they drive the disease process or are they uh, something else that brings on the disease and then this makes the disease more worse uh, or more manifest is another area of active research as well.
1: We have an email here and it kind of touches on some of the things that uh, you just mentioned. but our listener says, my husband' family has a history of Parkinson's disease. My husband is not showing obvious symptoms. I just fi- finished reading Michael J. Fox's book, Lucky Man. He describes his life and early onset Parkinson's disease with vivid detail. When is appropriate for Parkinson's screening and are there inter- early intervention techniques available?
2: Right. So uh, when is it appropriate? Uh, it is appropriate whenever you think there is a uh, sign of Parkinson's, whether you have a little bit of tremor or with a little bit of slowness. If absolutely nothing is there and no symptoms are there, then at the present time, there's no need for a clinical evaluation. However, if the patient or the family feels, oh, I'd like to be checked anyway, Uh, it's not unreasonable to come and be seen by a movement specialist, somebody who specializes in Parkinson's disease, like myself or others in the area to be evaluated. That's completely appropriate, because sometimes early signs of Parkinson's can be missed by both the patient, the family, as well as the family doctor. So it's not unreasonable to be checked for this thing. Um, As far as early intervention, at the present time, We don't have a drug per se, however, there's a lot of research going on. In fact, our uh, center, we have a study going on uh, to look at a particular drug called isradipine. It's a calcium channel blocker that is thought to help with Parkinson's disease in a study called Steady PD, funded by the National Institute of Health. We're actually doing that. And Angie happens to be participating in that research, actually. So uh, this is a research study to look at whether we can slow down progression of Parkinson's disease. It's a double-blind, placebo-controlled, long-term study that we're doing to exactly evaluate whether drugs like that can be used in early disease to slow down progression of disease. And we have a
1: similar question from another listener. It says, both of my grandfathers died with Parkinson's disease. My father's, father struggles with Parkinson's disease. My own children have noted that I have been developing a slight tremor. What testing should I have done, and what are the options for early treatment of Parkinson's? Also, how can early detection affect the life of a Parkinson's patient?
2: Right. So, a patient like the questioner should definitely get checked right away, because the fact that multiple members of the family are affected suggests that this family probably has a genetic form of the disease. This is relatively rare. Only 5% of uh, Patients with Parkinson's disease have a genetic form of disease, but the history that uh, the the questioner is providing suggests that they form a family that has the genetic form of disease. For them, um, there are special considerations uh, in in terms of genetic testing. There are a lot of already available genetic tests that can be done. And more importantly, we can predict how the disease course might be in such people, knowing whether they have the gene or not. So I would strongly advocate for uh, this uh, questionnaire to get a... uh, evaluation with a movement disorder doctor, Parkinson's specialist, ASAP, and see whether we can go to the next steps and what to do.
1: Now, the second part of his question, how can early detection affect the life of a Parkinson's patient?
2: Uh, Parkinson's is very, very, very much treatable disease. Um, there are very good medicines available. And the medicine, so long as you take it correctly on time and follow a schedule, you can really lead a completely normal life. Um, and we have many, many, many patients who lead a completely functional, uh, enjoyable, full life, uh, taking advantage of every entertainment possibilities that they would really want to engage in. So early detection often helps, first of all, rest their mind as to deciding what they have, A, B. It also puts uh, rest in mind in terms of medication. When we give them treatment and they're able to take it and the symptoms are under control, they feel that they can do whatever they want to do in terms of um, day-to-day life as well as uh, recreational things. So um, it's very important, in my opinion, uh, that early detection is carried out and early treatment initiation, if it's appropriate, is also carried out.
1: But going back to that soundbite we had with Michael J. Fox, now granted that was from 1999, he said in, when he was testifying before the Senate, that the medicines stopped working. Is that still the case?
2: That's really um, changed quite a bit in the, since the 90s. Um, in the early stages of Parkinson's treatment, we used to think that medicines only lasted for X number of years and then it stopped working. Um, we have learned quite a bit from our experience from all these years, 20, 25 years of experience, that if properly medicated and using a combination of what we, what we call polypharmacy, not using a single drug but using multiple drugs, we can really uh, maintain pharmacotherapy, that is, treatment of the patient throughout their life, lifeline, uh, lifetime. And also, there are other types of treatments that are available, there are surgical treatments like deep brain stimulation, there's also focused ultrasound, and there's gene therapy coming up and stem cell therapy coming up. All these types of therapies are available to our patients. So using a combination of medication plus different other types of modalities of therapy, we can certainly keep patients functional for an entire lifetime. So what Michael said in the 90s is true, but it's rapidly changing and we're advancing the care of Parkinson's disease dramatically. So I think we have to take that into consideration.
1: Also joining us today is Angie halaja Henriquez. Uh, Ms. halaja Henriquez, again, welcome to the program. You. you have been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Correct. Tell, tell us about that. What what symptoms were you presenting at first?
3: Um, actually, my, my children noticed a tremor before I did. I thought it was just fatigue. And then my staff um, at my office brought it up to me, too. And they were like, you really need to get that checked out. And after they pestered me for a few months, I went in. and uh, how, how did
1: this tremor present itself?
3: Um, you know, I would just be holding a drink and my hand would be shaking. Or I would be holding my briefcase at my side and, and my hand would shake. And um, I, I don't know why, but I, I didn't really think anything of it. You know, I have three kids. I'm really busy. I drink a lot of caffeine. You know, <laughs> I I didn't think about it. Um, then I thought, okay, well, maybe this is um, something that I injured my shoulder swimming years and years ago. And I thought, okay, maybe there's something going on there. So I went in to see my sports doc. And he said, well, I think it's essential tremor, but I'm going to have you checked out by Dr. Soob just in case. And, um, so that was, you know, February twelfth, uh, two thousand fifteen.
1: And um, how were you diagnosed?
3: Uh, well, you go in and they uh, and Dr. Sub. Soob- put me through um, a series of tests, and um, they seem a little silly when you're going through them, you know, um, touch your finger to your nose, walk on your tiptoes, walk on your heels. You stomp thought it was a DUI foot. thing, right? I, I was, it was very bizarre, <laughs> it was very bizarre. It's, you know, a, a lot of diseases, you, you take a blood test and, and you know, a, ver- a variety of, you know, biomedical tests and they right. come back and they say, this is what you have. No, this is touching your, you know, touching your, thumb to your forefinger doing all that kind of thing and yeah so I, I go through the series of, of tests and you know he says pull your chair in closer I, I need to tell you something and we need to have a talk Whew. I was like okay well that that's never an indication of anything good <laughs> so and there there you have it so what,
1: what kind of impact did it have on your life
3: um I was stunned at I'm 48 I was stunned um at first and um, and I am still up and down about it because it's just – it's hard to sometimes accept that someone at my age and as healthy as I am otherwise has Parkinson's. And uh, so I have good days and I have de- bad days. But, um, you know, I take my medication and I exercise and I do the best to take care of myself. And, and that really um, – means that Parkinson's does not have a huge impact on my day-to-day life.
1: Michael J. Fox, uh, when t- you see Michael J. Fox or Muhammad Ali uh, before he passed uh, this year, the tremors are very noticeable and uh, the body movements. The, uh, But when I'm sitting here looking at you, you look completely normal. It's, if you did not have your medication, would that be the case? No. It wouldn't be.
3: No. Um, had a stomach bug a week ago. wasn't able to take my medication for a whole day. I had tremor in both of my legs and tremor pretty significantly in my right hand. I mean, and it was it's surprising how quickly the tremors come on. But as Dr. Sue mentioned earlier, you need to take the medication as prescribed at the time that you're supposed to take it so that it works correctly. And if you do that. You don't have you don't have the tremor, and I've you know I've had people who I haven't seen in a couple of months say to me, "Wow, what a difference! I see no tremor at all." Mm.
1: Do you have any uh, family members, any family history of Parkinson's?
3: No, I mean this was out of left field.
1: Does it concern you about your children?
3: Um, it does. It, yeah, I um, my oldest son is is nervous, um, but of course he gets most of his medical information from by watching Doctor House, so I try to <laughs> tell him. Um, to try, Don't we all? Yeah, I mean,
0: we to,
1: kind of, you know, yeah. either online or TV, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, you know, we. I'm like, you know what, we'll watch and um, we'll, we'll just wait and see. Um, if the tremor's there, then we know. But yeah, I'm, I mean, it's out of left field for me. So who's to say that it's he's going to get it. That's not that's not predetermined.
1: Mm. Dr. Sue, you know, we've been talking a lot about tremors. There are people who have tremors who do not have Parkinson's disease, correct? I mean, how would you describe or I think it's one of those things that people know one when they see one. But what is a tremor? And aren't there people that do have tremors that are don't have a Parkinson's disease?
2: Uh, absolutely. So tremor in Parkinson's disease has a very specific character, which is called the rest tremor. So the limb that is tremulous is shaking when you're not doing anything. So for example, if you're just watching television and your hand shakes, or you're driving a car and your hand is simply resting on the steering wheel and it shakes, um, or the leg shakes while it's just sitting on the gas pedal and not pushing on the gas pedal. But then as soon as you push on the gas pedal, the tremor stops. Similarly, you're handing a spoon, and while you're just getting ready to take your soup, the hand is trembling, but as you lift soup off the uh, bowel and taking it to your mouth, it's no longer shaking. This is the kind of tremor that you get in Parkinson's disease. There is another kind of tremor which is called essential tremor, Uh, uh, 10% of Americans have it, and this is a tremor that happens when you do something. Um, and most of us are familiar with this when we drink a lot of caffeine. So if you drink five, six cups of coffee and then you hold your hand up your hand shakes or trembles and that's a characteristic feature of essential tremor. So the differentiation between rest tremor and essential tremor is that rest tremor happens when your limb is resting or the body part that is tremulous is resting whereas the essential tremor occurs when you actually do stuff. There are many other kinds of tremor but this is the main differentiation that most people are looking for in, in terms of the disease differentiation.
1: We have a listener, Amy, who asks, is there a link between depression and Parkinson's?
2: There's not a direct link, but uh, many people with idiopathic Parkinson's disease, the kind of Parkinson's disease that we're talking about where we're still trying to find a cause, um, there's 40% uh, higher prevalence of uh, depression. So many patients with Parkinson's disease do have depression. Uh, it's also true that many depressed people look like they have Parkinson's, which is called pseudo-depression, uh, or pseudo-Parkinson's, sorry, pseudo-Parkinson's disease. That's because there's a mass faced uh, a lack of expression on the face when you are depressed, uh, blink rate is reduced, you look as if you have Parkinson's disease. But that's not really Parkinson's disease. But these are important questions, and these do need the evaluation of a good neurologist to determine which way we want to go with.
1: Angie, did you get depressed afterwards?
3: Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but, um, you know, I am screened for that at my appointments, and I take medication for that. And um, I actually um, started seeing a therapist, and that helped me a lot because it, it's about me dealing with my new normal and adjusting to that. And um, I thought at first that I could just, you know, oh, I've got this, I'm taking my medication, I'm good, but no, I mean, it's I have my ups and my downs. And so you really have to be very self-aware of how you're feeling. And, and address it because, um, you know, if, if I am depressed, I have a hard time not only taking care of myself, but taking care of my family and doing my job. And I'm at a point in my life I, I need to take care of, of all of those things. They, none of those can slip. So um, it's an important part of my, my self-care.
1: Dr. Sub, I think you answered this, but uh, there's a Lancaster listener uh, wants to know, how does one find a movement specialist? Is Parkinson treated by a neurologist, general, general practitioner?
2: So generally, a movement specialist is somebody who has done a fellowship or done some additional training after neurology residency to specialize in Parkinson's disease and related disorders. Uh, Many of the major centers including Hershey Medical Center has these type of specialists. Uh, You can find them by looking at the Uh, American Parkinson's Disease Association or the Parkinson's Disease Foundation websites, they have links to uh, these type of specialists. There are several in uh, the state of Pennsylvania. The nearest one to them would be the Hershey Medical Center but there are other uh, areas that you can uh, go into. I also wanted to bring up a couple of other pointers that uh, that you uh, referred to earlier. Muhammad Ali and uh, Michael J. Fox are young onset PD patients. They are young onset Parkinson patients, similar to ANG. And there's often a myth that uh, my uh, the late Muhammad Ali had uh, uh, dementia pugilistica due to his boxing history. It's absolutely not true. Um, I had the privilege of taking care of him for three years while I was a fellow in in Emory University in Atlanta, and he used to be a regular visitor there. We all knew at that point itself, this was in the late 90s that I was there, I knew we all knew that he had regular Parkinson's disease. Part of the reason why his tremors would show up during the visits is that, unfortunately, he was not very compliant with this medicine. Uh. And he wouldn't take his medicines on time, despite a lot of... Uh, a request from the doctors as well as family members to um, take his medicine on time. Um, he was a very great man and a great uh, patient and he used to have a lot of levity and uh, that was the reason why he was so successful. He used to keep everybody in, uh, in a good mood And joke around and show his magic tricks to all of us when he came for his visits. I remember how he used to have a a false thumb and he would pull out a a handkerchief from the false thumb uh, so well that he would fool everybody from doing his little pranks. So... um, Again, just to set the record straight that if people do take medicines correctly, they can often control their symptoms extremely well.
1: We only have a minute or so left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today, but I did want to mention an event coming up, uh, the Brain Run event this Saturday. What
2: is that? Right, so this is a fundraiser. Uh, It's a 5K run, which happens at Milton Hershey School. Uh, It starts at 8.30 a.m. next Saturday, October 8th. Uh, People can come in and register to run for this race this brings in funds to create a uh, uh, endowment, and the endowment will support young people, high schoolers and college students to come and participate in Parkinson's research uh, at the Hershey Medical Center for years to come. Uh, it's a very ambitious goal, but uh, we really want people to come and participate. Angie will be running at the race, and we want people to see that young Parkinson patients who are well-controlled with the medicines can do anything they wanted to and uh, the sky is the limit. So we want people to come and increase them.
1: Dr. Taya Garajan-Submarinian, thank you very much for being with us today. And Angie halaja Henriquez. thank you for being with us today as well. Thank Thank you. you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, York Daily Record reporters who have traveled the state with the presidential campaigns talking to people across Pennsylvania and what they think of the candidates. That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's program.